You're listening to Edu Revolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Well, I am so excited to feature Dr. Bill Daggett on this episode of the Edu Revolution podcast. Bill is the founder of both the Successful Practices Network and the International Center for Leadership and Education, and he's an internationally known speaker regarding the future of education, among many other things. And let me just say on a personal note, Dr. Daggett, you have been so influential in in my journey as a teacher and administrator. And so, uh, so welcome to the show today. It's great to have you. Thank you, Mike. I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah, you know, you, I was doing just a little bit of research. Uh, you kind of founded the Successful Practices Network back in 2003, and that was initially kicked off by some funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And somewhere along in there, you're also very well known as the, the founder of the Rigor Relevance Framework. And so congratulations on those and, and so many of the successes that you've had in helping schools districts, leaders transform their educational program. And your latest endeavor comes in the form of Learning 2025. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And uh, maybe the place to start is just with this, this profound yet simple concept, today's kids are different. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, Mike, they are different. I mean, we all instantly recognize that they're an extension of their technology. Uh, They have never lived in a world without this technology in their hands. They're so young. But I think what we sometimes miss is the use of this technology has fundamentally changed many of the behaviors that our 20th century schools kind of took for granted that kids would have. And and let me give you four examples. Um, you know, in the past, when we turned legal age to get a driver's license, most of us got our licenses pretty quick. Today's kids are not so quick to do so. Uh, we're down from uh, high school graduates, uh, 92% of them having a driver's license just a decade ago, down to 58% today. Um, they, we used to have, most of our young people have part-time jobs before they graduate. Uh, today, it's down in the mid-40s in terms of the percentage of kids who've had a part-time job. They're not dating early. They're not even doing some things what generations, but we did, which is, uh, you know, they're, they're not going out and having adult alcoholic beverages with their uh, friends before they graduate. And Mike, we talk a lot about SEL skills, social emotional learning skills, you know, for good or bad. We learned a lot of those skills through trial and experiences by those events I just described, part-time jobs, driving, uh, dating. They're not having those experiences. So they're not just an extension of their technology. 
from a sociological point of view, that these kids are really different today than our 20th century schools are designed for. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And having I have identical twins, Bill, and um, they're 26 now. And I can just put a check in the box of everything you just described about my my own kids. They didn't start driving until they were. Gosh, I want to say 18, 19 years old. And that was after their mother and I basically forced them to do that. They're still living at home, which we're, we're grateful for uh, because we, you know, we enjoy each other's company. They're working. One of them has just finished the master's degree. The other one's working on the master's degree. And um, yeah, they've kind of delayed in dating. It's not, it's certainly changed through the generations. And so uh, I can say what you describe is 100% true in the McCormick household. And and it really is fascinating how dependent our our students today are on the technology, and it really provides a platform for the way that they do many of their interactions and communications with with one another. And the other thing that I think is is worth noting is that. You know, every student practically has a cell phone in their pocket, which is a mini computer where they can look up information, you know, that they need to, to do what they want to do or explore their passions or, you know, find the answers they're looking for. And so, you know, that kind of changes the role of educator uh, to more facilitator. Um, and so we've had this, you know, I think there was, what, 27 commissioners that came together crafted this report, Learning 2025. Uh, you you co-chaired this. What was kind of the question that the commissioners uh, were really were really wrestling with with the Learning 2025 plan? What question were they trying to respond to? Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, we, we came together in August, uh, started the discussion in August 2020. And now recognize, Mike, that was only a few months into the pandemic. And when the pandemic first started, everybody thought, well, this will be over in you know, a few months. By August, we knew it wasn't going to be over. And we also began to recognize that it was fundamentally changing uh, the workplace, the home society, as well as our schools. And the commission said, you know, we, we've known for a long time that Technology was changing the world. The kids were different, but we had just not quite turned the corner in terms of changing what we do in and around our schools. So the commissioners came together and said, you know what? The pandemic has become a tipping point in American education that post pandemic, our schools need to really begin to look and act differently than they were doing pre-pandemic. And so the central question was, well, if they're going to be different, why? And so we began with, what are the skills, the knowledges, and the attributes in a post-pandemic workplace, home, and society? Our kids are going to need to know and be able to use. And we quickly concluded they were quite different than our 20th century schools were designed to do. And that led to a whole series of discussions about, okay, 
you know, well, then how do we change the system and how, how do we support districts? Mike, like your district, to figure out uh, a way to better position the district for success in, in terms of preparing kids for their future, not our past. That statement just resonates so much with me. And I, I've said that many, many occasions, you know, let's prepare students for their future, not our past. I mean, it takes me back to, you know, the, the late 1800s with the committee of 10 led by Horace Mann and how we really haven't changed our model of schooling a whole lot. I mean, we've heard Sir Ken Robinson talk about, you know, this system that was built on the industrialized revolution and, and many, many others, including yourself, uh, going back for many, many years. And so we've kind of at this inflection point where it seems to me that the entire educational system has been, you know, what Kurt Lewin talked about as kind of unseated where, you know, we're in this chaotic time as a result of the pandemic and had to, we had to change, we had to change. And so in the midst of this unseated time, I agree. I think this is the moment in our nation's history to say, you know, let's think about, well, it's the title of the report, actually the American imperative, a new vision for public education where students are more focusing on, say, for example, the four C's, communication, collaboration, critical thinking, creativity. Students are learning how to work in teams with one another. I also love some of the elements in the report that talk about, you know, no student marginalized. How are we supporting each student and giving them just what they need, just when they need it? And there's many other features. So maybe we could get into kind of the, the pieces. Uh, and, and one of the things, Bill, that I loved about this is as soon as I read this report during the summer, I was like, this is the framework that I've been searching for as a school district leader. And so I thank you for leading, facilitating, creating uh, what I think is, is a really powerful framework to guide whole system reform. Uh, so, Bill, let's get into kind of that framework a little bit and maybe go through some of the elements. Uh, let's let's start, for example, Hang on just a second. Let me get over here. One, one of the elements is culture. And within culture, we've got whole learner focused, no learner marginalized, and future leaning. What are your thoughts on kind of those areas to kick us off? Yeah, uh, let's begin with the, the whole learner. Uh, and by the way, Mike, we, we use the term throughout the report learner rather than student because student almost depicts a passive role where the teacher is working and the kid is more passive. A uh, learner was a more active role, and, and we really think we've got to get the kids more actively engaged in the learning process. But the first one, uh, whole learner. Um, you know, we learned in the pandemic, Mike, something you knew as a superintendent and your leadership team knew, but I bet you most of the people in your community didn't understand how many kids we actually have to feed every day. <laughs> how, yeah. how, many, how many kids have uh, mental health issues we have to tend to? Uh, yes, we are an academic institution, 
first and foremost. But we were much more than that. And, and if we didn't do these other areas effectively and efficiently, that learning probably wasn't going to happen to begin with. So that first focus on let's create a culture where parents and community and media and board understand our commitment to whole learner. Tied right to that then was this issue that no learner shall be marginalized because of their race or their religion or their gender, their socioeconomic status, their disability, that we really need to love, nurture, support every child. And I underscore word every, every child to become all they're capable of being. And we need to do that, Mike, not only for the kids' sake, we need to do that for society's sake. Because if we don't make them independent, self-sufficient, contributing members of society, then they are, forgive me, a cost to society. We have to support them for the rest of their lives. Even with those t- within those two, the third area is the one that really we've been focusing on a whole lot with all these demonstration districts like yours, Mike, and there's now 117 of them in the country school districts, and that is we need to be more future-focused. We are preparing kids for a world that the 20th century schools are never designed to prepare kids for. You know, if if we go way, way back 100 years, and you might say, well, why would anybody go back that far? Because we're still under the same calendar and the same bell schedule as 100 years ago. Because 100 years ago, the key asset that anyone could have was land. And why was that? Because we're in the agrarian society. And the skills people needed were the skills to work on the land. But we were then in this transition from the agrarian to the industrial society where factories became a key. And the asset was the ability to have the equipment and, and processes and materials within a factory And a key skill was be able to work in those factories. What we need to understand is coming up to the pandemic, absolutely accelerated during the pandemic, was an explosion, an advancement in artificial intelligence. Um, And overly simplistic, uh, artificial intelligence is anything you can write an algorithm for. If you can write an algorithm for a task, the technology can do it faster, more efficiently than the human being. And so if you have a job that is deeply tied to some of those tasks, uh, you're unemployable in the immediate years ahead. And so what we began to recognize is in that world, tied to, and I don't want to get too technical here, Mike, but tied to sensors, sensors are being embedded in everything. We can't get cars right now, roster machines, uh, dryers, refrigerators, because we can't get the sensors to build them. And everybody's saying, well, it's a supply chain issue. That's partly it. Bigger issue is, in the last 18 months, we have had a tenfold increase in the demand for sensors because sensors are being embedded in everything. And artificial intelligence communicate with those sensors and network information together. And so 
when you take all that and step back, Mike, we, we, our schools are designed for the agrarian and industrial society. But the key asset moving forward is actually data. Those who control the data control the workplace, the home society, they control the world. And the skills that you need to function in that new economy is a fundamentally different set of skills and knowledges. And therefore, we knew that by focusing on being future focused, rather than forward focused, it would mean enormous changes in kind of the second part of the wheel you look at in terms of recommendations, which are the instructions, uh, the instructional programs. And let me just add, Mike, difference between future focused and forward focused. Most school districts are forward focused. What's that mean? You begin your budgeting process for next year based upon what you have in place this year, the contracts you have in place, the structures you have in place, the buildings you have in place, and say, what additional resources do we need to maintain them? If I'm a classroom teacher, I begin by what lessons did work well for me last year. I continue those. Those that didn't work so well, I tweak. We're always building from the past. The commission is saying, we understand why you do that. But what you really need to do is put a stake in the ground. And we put the stake in the ground 2025 and said, let's build back from the future rather than forward from the past. Let's focus on the kids' future, not the schools of our youth. Yeah, I love that. And, I, and I'm a huge fan of Kai-Fu Lee, who's done a lot of reading about, or a lot of writing about uh, the AI superpowers and uh, kind of that competition between China and the United States. And Kai-Fu Lee basically says that, you know, China is probably ahead of the United States in the actual implementation of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And it was really to your point, why China might be leading this race is because of their access to data. Data is the, seems to be the key resource because the more data rich you are, the better machine learning and artificial intelligence actually works. So while the United States is recognized as one of the leaders in terms of research and theory around artificial intelligence, we also need to be thinking about all of that data. And, and to your point with the sensors uh, that come in everything now, I was reading a report not too long, says that the Ford F-150 pickup truck has so many more uh, computer chips in it and sensors than, you know, airliners did in the past and certainly Mars in moon mission landings and things like that. And you're thinking, wow, you know, this is something that so many people have access to, uh, like our washers and dryers and our dishwashers and other appliances that we're now bringing into our households that are also the internet of everything where they've got all these sensors and things built into them. And so 
So having this as a backdrop, how do we think about preparing students for their future and what does it look like for them to navigate? And so this is something that um, is one of the key pieces of the report that that Bill and I have been talking about. And, and so what does that actually look like between teachers and students in our classrooms? What type of skills and knowledge and dispositions do our students need to have to kind of operate and flourish uh, in in their future? Uh, so, Bill, any thoughts on that? What is that? What might that look like between teacher and student in a classroom, preparing our students for this this world that we're in? Um, thoughts on that? We probably have the models already in your school district, Mike. Uh, Historically, teachers, especially as you get into the later grades, uh, teachers are very much about sharing content. And I used to say kids come to school to watch their teachers work and, and the teachers being passive. And what you've got to do is more actively engage the kids. And for the educators and maybe li uh, listening, that's a lot like problem-based learning and so on. In effect, what we've got to do is teach kids to apply the knowledge that we're teaching and they will need to use and apply as an adult. And that's why a lot of people call it problem-based learning. It changes the role of the teacher from the disseminating of knowledge and content to facilitating the learning process. Now, think about your band directors and the people in the performing arts in your building. Think about your coaches. You know, in, in those cases, the student is doing the work. The, the teacher, the coach, uh, the band director, the performing arts director, they're facilitating the work. Uh, a lot of your Korean tech ed programs do that as well. And I'm going to suggest to you, we used to, 10, 20 years ago, uh, go ask any kindergarten teacher, they used to do a lot more of that, but we, we became so fixated on only core academic skills that we drove more and more time around basic academic skills, which are essential, but they're not adequate. We drove them so early into the early elementary schools that we took away things like structured play and teamwork and interactions, uh, all important to prepare kids for the 21st century. And so the point... I think is important for everybody to recognize is the commission is not recommending new courses. We're recommending a fundamental shift in the delivery of instruction. We can't add anything more to the overburdened uh, school curriculum. The incredible stress our teachers are under. Uh, what we've got to do is change how they're teaching, not add more to it. So I often say is we're not adding another layer to the cake. We're remixing the batter. Yeah, I love that. And you know, and it's so funny you jog my memory, Bill, because I remember seeing you in the past where you at some at some point you added up the time it would take to teach every content standard. And we typically have, you know, 13 years of schooling. And I, I want to remember it was like a wild number. Like it would take us 50 years if we taught everything that was in the standards. 
Yeah. And, um, and I, I completely agree. I think the idea of problem or project-based learning where students are uh, being guided in their passions um, and, and they're really working towards solving a problem. And in order to solve that problem, students are needing to learn the math, the science, the social studies, the English, and all the other aspects of it. So rather than the content standards kind of driving student learning, it's actually the project that's guiding student learning. And then students are picking up those transferable skills and the content and the knowledge that they need along the way in order for them to reach their goal, which to me sounds a lot more like life outside of school. You know, it's, uh, we've often said like, how do we make a student's life more closely match what they're doing outside of school, inside school? So that doesn't feel like they're just kind of, uh, taking this long flight where they're isolated and can't get off the airplane uh, and they, they don't have access to their electronics and things like that that they would outside the school doors. Well, let's move kind of into the next category, which so is social, emotional, and cognitive growth. And the way I see this is that we really need to identify build, harness the systems that measure student increases in achievement and cognition uh, and, and their emotional, uh, you know, success, I guess, just general, in, kind of in general student wellness. What are your thoughts on this, on this part of the pie chart? Yeah, what we know, Mike, is uh, those skills are ones that are critical for success in life. And uh, I go back to you know, if, if you look at interpersonal skills, if you look at higher order learning skills, if you look at what we call self-leadership skills, uh, and, and think about, Mike, when we ever had to fire somebody, did we have to fire them because they didn't have good core academic skills? Usually not. I don't Usually think. not. Yeah. When you get a new next door neighbor, what are you hoping for? <laughs> somebody who you can get along with. And... Uh, if you're in a civic organization, what are you hoping for? And, and if you're, if you got a son or a daughter who, uh, let's say are in their early twenties or your twins and they're 26 and they're beginning to come home with a, a young person a lot, you begin to say, wow, it could become the parent of my grandchild, uh, could be my future son-in-law, daughter-in-law, what's most important to you. And think about those type of skills, they are skills that are critical. And I suggest to you, again, kindergarten teachers used to teach them. I suggest to you that a lot of our uh, club activities in our schools taught those, but they weren't front and center. The commission is saying we got to put them front and center. And to do that, you mentioned a minute ago, project-based learning. It's that working in a member of a team, how to function as a member of a team. They are critical skills, which again, isn't a course. It's a change in instructional practices. 
Yeah, I love that. And I know that um, part of the report kind of outlines or suggests, you know, the idea of portrait of a graduate, portrait of a learner, portrait of a district, portrait of an educator, portrait of a leader, uh, and that these can be very unifying uh, processes where the school district is reaching out to parents, students, community members, seeking their input. You know, what is it that we want for our students when they leave our system in terms of skills and dispositions and attitudes? And um, that's one thing that we've spent some time on in my district. I know there's many districts across the nation that are doing. And th- these, not only are they unifying, because it kind of gets everybody with all the voices to the table to say, this is what's important to us. And I have to say, when, you know, one of my twins is actually in kind of, you know, kind of getting to a serious relationship. And when you think about the behaviors and the characteristics of somebody who could be the future father to my grandkids. It's like, okay, that's next level, Bill. That just puts, that just makes it personal for everybody. But I would say these, these portraits also kind of serve as a North star for the system, uh, which I think is very powerful. And in some cases it even gives people an image or an infograph or a picture to help them kind of connect the dots. And I've I've been a big believer that if you can give something visual to people, it actually helps them remember, uh, think about, and what is their place within the system. So again, it kind of serves as this unifying experience uh, for, for school districts and communities as they're thinking about doing that. Uh, one of the other areas is resources. And in within this resources category, we have learning accelerators, align community resources, access to early learning, and diverse educator pipeline. Thoughts in this portion of the graphic? Yeah, if we're going to change our instructional practices, if we're going to become more personalized instruction, Find out what is relevant to each child, uh, drive educational experiences, the development of academics around relevant experiences for that child. We're going to have to use technology differently than we've used it in the past. A lot of people thought, well, if we just go one-to-one in terms of technology, we've done all we need to do in technology. And our answer to that is no, no, you haven't. You just tried to make technology fit the old system. Uh, for example, we, we wouldn't let kids use uh, their iPhone or a device like that when they take a test because they uh, might Google the answer or share information with each other. In other words, they might use resources or work with others. Two most basic skills needed to be independent in the 21st century. See, what we did, Mike, is we have historically almost unconsciously did this. We've tried to make advancing technology conform to our 20th century schools rather than transforming our 20th century schools to effectively use 21st century technology that the kids will have to use for the rest of their lives. And and that's the learning accelerator. It can help us change how we organize and deliver instruction. Within that context, that technology then really enables us to connect up 
uh, our kids out of the school. Uh, it can bring the, the community uh, from around the globe into our classrooms. And that's why we say align with community resources. You, you want to talk about, you know, anything about uh, history or another nation or uh, any issue, why not actually go right to the sources and the technology enables to do that? Yeah, I, I love I love that as an example. I'm sorry, you got me excited there because I, that's exactly the way I see it. It's like, how do we move learning outside of a 960 square foot classroom so that students are dealing with authentic audiences? It's the technology that allows the kids to work on the four C's, communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and creativity. Yeah. Sorry, I I had to throw that in there, yeah. Bill. Back at you. Yeah, well, I, the other two areas is just, uh, Mike, we, we know our children, especially our children in poverty, are coming to us one in two years developmentally delayed when they get to kindergarten, and they never catch up. And so we have pushed for uh, universal funding for three- and four-year-olds. So we get everybody closer to uh, an even starting line. And then finally, you know, our our nation uh, minorities are now the majority, but we don't see that in our schools, in our teaching staff, in our administrators. And so we feel there's a need to bring more uh, diverse backgrounds for our teachers and administrators. And so we, we push for an effect, something like a GI bill uh, to uh, attract more minorities into the education uh, uh, system. And so th they were the key resources. And you put them all together, we think it's going to take uh, three, four, five years to change the system at a minimum. And that's why we call it, again, 2025. Uh, make this change evolutionary around all the areas we're talking about, Mike, not revolutionary. Revolutionists get killed. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I love that. And, and and one of the things that I did kind of read that I'm super excited about is that the commission's job is not complete. I think once the, uh, you know, hundred and some odd school districts across the nation, one of the really nice things is that uh, we as consumers of this or participants, I should say, in this get act access to some great resources. And my understanding was that the commission is actually going to come back together or meet periodically throughout the period up through 2025 to really kind of solidify and highlight and expand and extend what uh, your organization, what AASA has learned, what the school districts have learned by being partnered with one another, and um, kind of, I, I don't know, maybe you, you would be better positioned to, to answer this question, but I guess the question would be, is that part of the process that you see uh, is that there'll be some additional information that's published about this journey that we're on? The answer is absolutely, Mike. Uh, there's 117 districts, including yours, now in the, this national network working on the implementation of one or more of the recommendations, uh, district by district. We think we'll have 200 districts by the end of the year. Next June, the last week in June, June 28th through 30, we're going to have a national summit 
in Washington, D.C. In fact, Mike, you don't even have the details as a member of, of the network yet because we're going to announce it the week after Thanksgiving. We're going to have a national summit in Washington, D.C. for three days. And what we're doing is through the senior uh, consultants working with all the districts, we're picking the most successful innovative pra practices we're finding across 117 districts. Having them present to all the districts, here's our most successful practices uh, that we have some documentation is really uh, having positive impact. Following, uh, and as part of that summit, the commission will be there. And the commission's role will not be to talk, but to listen. What do we hear? What's working? What's not working? And based upon that, then make recommendations to uh, the National Governors Association, to Congress, to the White House, uh, about what policies need to put in place to take these best practices we're seeing and bring them to scale. And so these 117 districts, in effect, Mike, are lighting the path for the rest of the country. We're going to do that annual summit every year for the next four years. And in between the summits, then, we all individual school districts where uh, if you your district sees something, wow, that's really attractive. I really like to try to do that. We want you and a team from your district to go visit those other districts. We want teachers talking to teachers, principals talking to principals, superintendents talking to superintendents, boards talking to boards. Uh, not theoretically, but practically, this is what we have done, and here's our proof, here is the practice. And so it's, again, a four-year journey for all of us. Well, Bill, you're speaking my love language. Uh, because what I heard in all of that was a tremendous opportunity to have practice inform policy. And throughout my educational experience and my journey, it, it seems to kind of always go the other way, uh, you know, where we feel like consumers of the system as we're out running school buildings and districts and to kind of flip that on its head and say, you know, let's let's put practice in the driver's seat. Let's have systems learn from other systems across the country and to have the commissioners leading with their ears, so to speak, and really being good listeners about what's proving to, to work to, in, to improve, you know, students' lives and help them become better human beings and self-actualized in a way that they'll be the most successful version of themselves. I just think that's fantastic. Well, Bill, we're coming to the end here. I always like to ask this question. What's on your gratitude list? Uh, the incredible efforts of classroom teachers and school administrators during an incredibly different, difficult pandemic. Uh, Mike, we've put more on schools than God ever intended our schools to have to do. And our teachers, our administrators, <laughs> yeah. our support staff has stepped up. And just, I don't think the nation yet has appreciated what incredible leadership they've played during this period of time uh, with blood, sweat, and tears to get there. So I'm deeply thankful to all of them. Well, that sounds like a great way to wrap up this episode. Dr. Daggett, it has been an absolute pleasure 
to have the conversation with you. I look forward to uh, our journey together through the Learning 2025. In the show notes, I'll make sure that people uh, have all the information they need to become a part of Learning 2025 or some of the other things that we've talked about today. And uh, it's been just a wonderful, wonderful time uh, with you. So thanks so much, Dr. Daggett. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. and, And thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the EduRevolutionPodcast.com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.